do take a seat. Now this morning, I'm going to start with a dangerous introduction. I'll tell you why it's dangerous in a second, uh, but this is the introduction, this is it. If you could spend the evening with four people from history, or today, who would you have round for the evening? Who would you spend your evening with? Now this is a dangerous question, as I suspect that something like a third of you will now spend the rest of this half an hour thinking about who those four people will be, rather than listening uh, to the talk. But I'm going to trust you, okay, that once we finish the introduction, you're going to put it to one side, and uh, we'll come back to it and chat about it over, over drinks afterwards, okay? So who would you have round? Now I know that most of the Christians here this morning would say Jesus uh, as one of the people they would have round, take that as given, but who else would you have? We've got quite a few ex-maths teachers. Uh, it's one of those sort of weird groups that we have in church that there's a sort of, I don't know what you call a group of ex-maths teachers, probably something like a, uh, an array or a, I don't know, something like that. But maybe our ex-maths teachers contingent would have Pythagoras. Don't know, just a theorem, just a theorem. <laughs> You'll get it later if you, you're telling others. Maybe our local history enthusiast would have Thomas Chippendale, because, you know, he's, he's from Otley, uh, though he'd probably just spend his time criticising your furniture. Maybe some of our visitors uh, from uh, Horsforth would have someone famous like Matthew Lewis, who played Neville Longbottom in the Harry Potter films. Apparently he's from Horsforth. Or Nick Baines, the keyboardist from the Kaiser Chiefs, um, though you may have to fight because the people from Menston also claim uh, that uh, Nick Baines is one of theirs because he went to school in Menston. Uh, but it's a tricky task because there are so many people, aren't there, from history, from now, that you could choose. But Jesus here in our passage chooses two people from history to meet with in front of his disciples. Jesus could have picked anybody. This is Jesus. It's not beyond his capabilities. But he picks two. He picks Moses and he picks Elijah. Jesus here spends some of his time with the two great prophets from Israel's history. Moses, who was a prophet who took them out of Egypt, and Elijah, who was the prophet who took the prophets of Baal on and, and called down fire from heaven. Elijah's also the one who went up to heaven in a whirlwind, not a chariot of fire, uh, as uh, sometimes you hear. He wasn't even a rugby fan, uh, apparently. But uh, Jesus spends time, again, you'll get it later. Uh, Jesus spends time with these guys to teach his disciples something. That's what he's doing. It's not like he sort of wants this as a dinner party, but he wants to teach his disciples something by the people that he's spending time with. But what? What does he want to teach them? Okay, now you need to forget your four people and we'll move on to our first point, okay? So our first point is the kingdom of God with power. Jesus ended our last passage with some incredibly challenging stuff. This is what we had last week, uh, Mark, 20, uh, Mark 8, uh, 38 to 9, 1. Uh, and whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He speaks here of the Son of Man coming in glory. He speaks of the kingdom of God coming with power. 
And then in a surprise twist, which has confused people for generations, he says that some standing there will see it. He says, this is going to happen, and you will see it happen. And following this, we get our passage this morning. So have a look again at verses 2 to 4, if you've got a Bible in front of you. And after six days, Jesus took, uh, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. A week after Jesus talked with Peter about what it means to follow him, Peter, James, and John are taken up a mountain by Jesus. Now, Peter, James, and John are Jesus' inner circle of disciples, and, and they often get to see a bit more than some of the other ones do. Like in chapter 5, they get to go along with Jesus to see the raising of Jairus' daughter. And here they see Jesus transfigured. Now, the Greek word there is metamorphio, which is where we get our word metamorphosized from. He's, he's changed before their eyes. He, he's, he's different from what he was before. Mark doesn't tell us the way that he's changed, but Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses' face shone, but that was seemingly a byproduct of talking to God, of having God in front of him. But here, Jesus' face is shining as God, if you like, outwardly. Mark tells us that his clothes become radiant too, white. This is an incredible sight. His clothes become white like no dry cleaner could ever get them. And that is actually what it says there. The, the old word for that profession was a fuller. I'd never come across that before. I, I know dry cleaner, but I didn't really know fuller. But that's what the word is used here. I mention that because only Mark puts it this way. There's plenty of ways to describe white things, aren't there? But Mark goes with this. There's only one other mention of a fuller in the Bible, and that's God himself in Malachi 3. I don't think that this is a throwaway comment by Mark, because this is what Malachi 3 uh, says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of his covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. Mark's already quoted the first verse to tell us about John the Baptist in chapter 1. And we're going to see that John is the one in mind as Jesus talks here too. The one who can bleach this white, the one who can remove all stains, is God himself. And what it's telling us is that something here that's happening is supernatural. This isn't normal. It's a vision of glory. It's a vision of who Jesus truly is. But Jesus is not the only one here, is he? Elijah appears and Moses appears, two of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Intriguingly, they're those two who get to meet God in a special way in the Old Testament. It, we're told God passes by them both. We mentioned that a few months ago when we talked about Jesus walking on water. God had revealed himself in a special way that nobody else had in the Old Testament, just to these two. And both of them happened on mountains. And then here in the New Testament, God appears in a special way on a mountain with these two people. It's clear that something incredible is happening 
Something amazing is happening. To put this in wedding language, if you've got Moses and Elijah as your best men, how important must the groom be? If they're your sort of stand-in act, if they're the people who are supporting. This is a glimpse of Jesus' glory. A glimpse of what mortal eyes are not normally allowed to see. And Peter is profoundly affected by this. He even speaks about it in his second letter. He says that Jesus received honour and glory from the Father on the mountain. He doesn't mention much about Jesus' life in his letters, but he tells you about this experience. So is this what Jesus was talking about in verse 1? Is this the kingdom of God coming in power? Is this what the disciples were waiting for? Well, the disciples, they really don't know what to think. And so our second point, don't panic. Don't panic. Have a look at verses 5 to 8. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no one, uh, saw, no, they, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Peter's initial response is terror, utter terror. Now, I think when I've read this before, I've assumed that, you know, it, it's the bright clothes or, or maybe a, a mixture of sort of starstruckness, you know, meeting your heroes, Elijah and Moses, that must be pretty big. But I think we need to think about the appearance of Elijah and what that would mean to these disciples. I think it takes on a bit of a different vibe when we look at it this way. Elijah, as they note later, was due to come before the end of the world. And they believe that this is it. Elijah is here. They were told, well, after Elijah comes, it's the end. The last word of the Old Testament uh, are these, Malachi 4. Uh, four to six. Remember the law of my servant Moses, who's there as well, for the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Elijah is the clue that the end is here. Well, here is Elijah. Therefore, they're probably thinking that the day of the Lord is here. Even Moses is there. You know, he's put on an appearance as well. The end is well and truly nigh. And they are terrified. We'll see this response throughout the gospel. That when faced with profound spiritual realities and truths, their response is to fear. It should be faith, but instead it's fear. They're presented as opposites in Mark's gospel. Peter, not knowing what to say, suggests building three tents. He's sort of flustered and, and, and wants to say something. Now, it could be that he's trying to prolong the experience, as many people know. You know, oh, I'll set up a tent, then you could stay around for a bit. But it's more likely that he's getting things all mixed up with something called the Feast of Ingathering. There's a festival that those of us who are here uh, when we were doing Exodus, we noted a few weeks ago, that that festival was associated with the final harvest, the end of the world. It was also called the Feast of Booths, and that's when they were supposed to live in tents for seven days. That was the, the same festival. So I wonder if in Peter's mind it's sort of, well, all right, the, the end's here. What do we do at the end? 
oh yeah, it's tense. That's what we do at the end, isn't it? Tense. That's the proper law-mandated end-of-the-world thing to do. Seems a little bit weird to us because we don't have that festival, but I wonder if that connection is going on in Peter's mind. The irony, of course, is that the imagery with the tents was to show the passing nature of the world. It was the exact opposite image of what people say that they're trying to attain, that, that permanence. Because tents actually don't last. Well, you might, I don't know how, what experience the camping guys have had this week. In my experience, tents don't last uh, very long. Maybe I'm putting them up wrong, I don't know. But at that moment, as they're wondering what on earth is going on, as they're all confused, a cloud overshadows them. Now, the cloud is not accidental. It's not a weather phenomenon. Uh, it's not just that they, they're after a bit of rain. Again, sorry to the camping people. But Jesus has been talking about himself as the son of man. He'll do so again in this passage. This is what is written about the Son of Man in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here we see the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days in the clouds of heaven. So in our passage, Elijah's come, the clouds are here, and you're left with this question, is it the time? Is this now the time for the Son of Man to receive glory and dominion and a kingdom? That's what you're left with. These are sort of end time things. Well, if you were here last week, you know the answer. The disciples should know the answer to this. They were definitely there a week ago when Jesus told them this. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. We saw last week that that meant that there's no path to glory without the cross. There's no shortcut through the suffering for Jesus or for his followers. You see, everything here is being set up for Jesus to sort of be taken up to heaven, translated up to heaven, to avoid tasting death. I mean, they've got Elijah right in front of them. He was one who did that. So we know it's definitely possible. But no, there's no path to glory without the cross. The Son of Man must suffer before he enters his glory. And then that rising again and entering in his glory after the cross is really what the kingdom of God coming with power is. After he's crowned on the cross, after he's done his priestly work of rescuing his people by his blood, he rises again. Power in the Bible, you see, is, is supremely linked with Jesus' resurrection. So Romans 1, verse 4. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Or Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. When he conquers death, when he does all this, that will then be what they're waiting for. 
And that, again, is what the disciples failed to grasp. Peter should have known that the end was not here now because there were still things for Jesus to do. He still had to suffer. But instead, he's terrified. And if all this weren't terrifying enough, a voice comes from heaven. And in verse 7 says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And just as we commented at the time of Jesus' baptism, the beloved son bit echoes back to Isaac, Abraham's beloved son, and the son of David in Psalm 2. And so too, listen to him reveals something of Jesus' identity too. God is teaching them through this. Moses, who we've just seen, said to the people in Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Here, God is declaring that Jesus is the one they must listen to. So he's not only the son of man, the son of God, the son of David. He's also the prophet like Moses that they were to listen to. But that's been the problem all along. They've not really been listening. Sure, they've been hearing. Jesus has been speaking to them. But even here with their ears partly open, they still don't understand that he's come to suffer and die. They don't understand that pattern of suffering now and glory later. They don't understand that there's no kingdom without the cross. They're listening, but they're not listening. Well, God now tells them to listen. Listen to him. And you might be thinking, well, which one? Is it Moses? Is it Elijah? Is it Jesus? Well, then Moses and Elijah go, and it's just Jesus. Here is the one that you are to listen to. Here is the one that you are to heed. Here is the one you're to pay attention to. to. You see, Jesus is not just one prophet among many. He's not on a par, on a level with Moses and Elijah or, or any other supposed prophet you care to mention. Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Nanak Devji or Mirza Hussain Ali Nuri, who have claimed to be prophets. Jesus is unique. He is God's son. So Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now... In these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. So Jesus is not just another prophet in a long line of prophets. He's creator of the universe. He's the one that all the other prophets looked forward to. He's the one who comes with God's the Father's stamp of approval. This is my beloved son. You see, Christ is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Are we reading his word, the Bible? Are we taking it seriously? Are we actually then doing what it says? Or is Jesus just one of many voices that sort of compete for our attention and compete for what we should do? Are we listening to him, really listening? Or are we letting other voices, perhaps our own voice, drown him out? The disciples, they're starting to listen. But despite Jesus opening their ears in part, opening their eyes in part, they're still a bit hard of hearing. And so our last section, confused.com. 
other insurers are available. Have a look at verses 9 to 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them uh, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus tells them to keep this event uh, a secret until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now that might seem fairly plain to us, but they seem confused about what Jesus is talking about. You see, the disciples would have been familiar with this idea of rising from the dead. Most of the Jews in Jesus' day could see in their Bibles that there would be a rising from the dead, a resurrection of everyone at the end of time. And there will be, they're right. But what Jesus is talking about is his own resurrection, ahead of time, so to speak. This won't be at the end of the world, but in history, not so long after this talk that he's having with the disciples. But again, the disciples don't quite seem to get this. If it's uh, talking about that, then, well, hang on, doesn't Elijah have to come first before the end of the world? That's what the scriptures said. We, we read that before. And Jesus tells them that Elijah would come and restore all things. We were told, weren't we, that he would prepare the way for the day of the Lord. Did you know that Jews to this day set a place out on a Friday night for Elijah at their table, just in case he returns? Well, Jesus answers, yeah, the scribes have got it right. In fact, Elijah does come first before the end. In fact, he's already come. Now, Mark doesn't spell this out explicitly, but the other Gospels do. So Matthew, it says he answered, Elijah does come and restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they please. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them of John the Baptist. And then in Luke 11, uh, you'll see from that quote there, it's referred to that he would be uh, the one when he was born that would come in verse 17 in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. In John's gospel, John says that he's not Elijah. And that's true because he's not just dropped out of heaven in a whirlwind. He's not the man who's just been standing with Jesus in the transfiguration. He's not Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead. But he is that Elijah figure that Malachi talked about. This is how Jesus sees this being fulfilled. What's interesting here, though, is that what happened to this Elijah figure? Whereas Elijah and Moses were both spared the typical ending of a prophet, this Elijah got the normal ending for a prophet. He was killed by the people that he was preaching to. That's the usual ending for a prophet if you go through the Old Testament. And John is no different. But neither then will be the Son of Man, says Jesus in verse 12. If Elijah comes to prepare the way to trailblaze the path, then actually the Son of Man will follow it. Suffering now, glory later. Suffering and treated with contempt now, but coming in glory later. And that is the path that God has given us. As we saw, we tread that path too as Christians. 
If it was this way for John and Jesus, why would it be any different for us? So what we have in our passage, really, as we saw that picture of Jesus, is a glimpse of glory, but it's fleeting. The glory that is to come, though, will last forever. But Jesus, notice, doesn't say, oh, no, don't worry, that's still to come. Jesus answers that Elijah has already come. And that leaves us with a question. If Elijah comes before the end, and Elijah's already come, then when is the end coming? When is the terrible day of the Lord, as it refers to in Malachi? Because Jesus could have just said, no, 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 I'm not talking about the general resurrection at the end, I'm talking about my own personal resurrection. But he doesn't. He actually points out that what God had said would happen at the end has happened. Elijah has come. We see from the Father's message from the cloud that the prophet like Moses has come, so not waiting for him either. The Son of Man is here. So what is there left to happen before the end? Well, what did Jesus say? He said the Son of Man must suffer, die, and after three days rise again. But again, for us, that's happened. Does that mean then the end is imminent? Shouldn't the day of the Lord now be here? Well, some Christians go with the idea that it's sort of been put on hold, as though God has hit the pause button, and the day of the Lord will be later. But I think the better option is to see it this way, that the day of the Lord is here. That the end has already begun. Because actually, all the things that belong to the end have already begun to happen. Elijah has come. The Spirit has been poured out. The Messiah has come and died on the cross in our place. A resurrection has taken place. These are all things that biblically belong to the end. So in that sense, the day of the Lord has begun in some senses. It's the last days. It's the latter days. But the day of the Lord hasn't been completed yet. That won't be until Jesus returns. But all is in place for that now to happen. That's why Jesus could return at any moment and bring in the day of the Lord, capital D, capital L. I think those are the right capitals. Again, in 2 Peter, Peter writes this, 2 Peter 3, uh, 8 to 10. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, in Mark, Jesus doesn't tell them, it's okay, it's not yet. He tells them again and again to be ready. He says, it's going to come like a thief. You're not going to know when the final day of the Lord comes. So be watchful. Watch and pray. Be on guard. If you haven't turned to Jesus, if you haven't repented, do it now. And in the meantime, those who follow Jesus follow that same pattern, suffering many things and being treated with contempt, but awaiting that glory that is to come, that we get the glimpse of here. You see, in the end, it doesn't matter who you spend your evening with. It matters who you spend eternity with. An evening is fleeting and passing, isn't it? But eternity is forever. Who are you going to spend eternity with? Because that's decided now before Jesus comes back, before that final day of the Lord. What matters is that you spend it with Christ and his redeemed people. 
So if you haven't put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you need to do that now. And if you have put the trust in the Lord Jesus, well, you need to keep going. Keep going through those hardships and sufferings that Jesus promises. And keep listening to Jesus. What matters is that you spend eternity with him in glory that will far outweigh the suffering that we experience now. So let's keep going, keep listening to Jesus, and turn to him if we haven't already. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we have that glory to look forward to. Father, thank you that one day the Lord Jesus will return and bring in that final day of the Lord. Father, we pray that we would be ready. Father, we pray that we would be watchful uh, for that day. Father, help us to keep listening to Jesus, not just hearing him, but putting into practice what he says. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have our...